0: Do you love artificial intelligence? Or are you interested in what may be what our future will hold as technology increases? If that's true, this is your episode. Today's guest is Matt O'Connor, who works in the field of AI. I ask him a variety of questions related to our future and in artificial intelligence. Have you ever wondered if Alexa or Siri is listening to you? Do you think there will be sentient robots? Listen so you can hear some of the answers to those questions. If we're far from that or close to it. Ladies and gentlemen, Matt O'Connor. All right, Matt O'Connor, thank you so much for being on the show, and I am really feel good about kind of the subjects we're going to talk about, because I'm big into AI, obviously not knowing as much as you do about it and what you do, but I think it's always an interesting discussion in this day and age.
1: Appreciate that, Darian. Yeah, great to to be here, just chat about uh, things that I'm very interested in. I think AI has a lot of, you know, implications for people outside of the realm of technology, social implications, economic implications that are uh, always good to be talking about, especially these days. So what is the
0: role of AI? How do you see it? Where are we seeing in terms of the people who are working on AI? What's that point of view versus what you see that the general public's view of AI, artificial intelligence is?
1: Obviously, there's a lot of different... um, Elements in that, but if I had to reduce it down to kind of one thing, I think people who are working in the technological field of AI um, realize that AI is still what you might call pretty dumb. It still has a long way to go. Mm -hmm. Um, The intelligence can do specific things, like it can do a specific task, like write a sentence or drive a car to a degree that approaches or in some cases exceeds a human's ability to do so, but we haven't yet reached a point where we have general intelligence, where you can have an algorithm kind of do any task a human might do or more. Um, and so people in the field kind of understand that AI is still relatively dumb, still has a long way to go, but that doesn't mean that it's not you know, useful or dangerous if mis- misused. And the people outside the field I see um, either thinking that AI, you know, overestimating AI's capabilities or actually underestimating mm-hmm. AI's capabilities in terms of it can, it can still be incredibly useful for given tasks.
0: I would think that, you know, I think we often, people on outside of AI like myself, mm-hmm. probably look at it in a more science fiction element yeah. of it. Yeah, right. Definitely. Like, oh, the future and Skynet and Sentience <laughs> and stuff, you know?
1: Yeah. <laughs> definitely. I think that's definitely an element of it. And that brings along with it, you know, naturally because people oftentimes are just wary of what they don't, you know, understand and especially things that can think like humans bring in a novel element to that. So I think there's a lot of sensational headlines especially in a negative light uh in the in the public's view and not necessarily as much doom and gloom with the people working on AI, which is not to say that there isn't you know, concerns and, and lots of things to to watch out for as the technology continues to get uh, more powerful.
0: So what has been, if you could kind of boil it down to in the past 15, 20 years, what have been the biggest leaps in AI during that time?
1: Yeah, so the funny, the kind of funny thing is that when you think about AI, um, just to break it down really quickly, you're really talking about an input So what we what you might have heard of called data, but right, you can think of this as just like your brain takes in images or hears sounds and then processes those right the AI is taking in uh, data that can be image files, it can be tables, it could be, you know, Excel type of data, and then an algorithm. Processes or analyzes that data and creates an output, and that output can be a prediction about what happens next. It can be a classification, like this is the picture of a dog or this is a picture of a cat. All these kind of things that our brain does very, very quickly, very, very well. Um, so that's what AI is, right? It takes in information, it processes it, and it, it spits out some kind of output. And the actual middle part of that, the algorithm part of that, much of the cutting-edge algorithms out there today that can finally do things like image recognition, facial recognition, you know, emotional analysis, complicated natural language processing, much of those have been around for 20, 30, even 50 years. What was really lacking was the amount of data, the access to large amounts of information and data, and also the hardware to accelerate just the algorithm being able to crunch a lot of calculations in a limited amount of time. And so the biggest kind of changes have been the rise in cloud computing, as well as um, graphics cards, GPUs, which are actually faster at running these calculations than CPUs in your normal computer. And so the hardware and access to data enabled us to now start using these algorithms that have been around for a while, but in novel applications and new ways in new industries that weren't used before. And that's primarily been the biggest advances. And then it's maybe the past five years or so that we're starting to get more and more um, advancements with the algorithms themselves, starting to bring in some really cool, uh, some of my favorite areas of exploration or, or, or recent developments on the algorithmic side are starting to go the direction of helping humans better understand and interpret why an AI is making the decision that's making, why it's coming to the, de- mm. the decision. Um, so those are really powerful and very useful because that's been up to this point, One relative weakness of AI is that it can be, you know, the term is black box. It can be basically hard to understand what's happening in that middle step. And you can see what data is going into the AI. You can see it's looking at this picture. And you can see that it says, oh, this picture, I recognize it's a dog or it's a person or it's a car coming at me at 30 miles per hour. But you don't easily understand what about it made it think that. And so that's an area that is, we're starting to change the algorithms to uh, be more um, human interpretable.
0: Yeah, When you say like why they made the decisions, that sounds very human-like, like Like the explanation of why something did something Mm -hmm. seems to be moving towards more of a, almost an understanding more like analytically, like, well, this decision versus that, that decision. So you're saying right now, you're starting to learn why AI is making different decisions.
1: Yeah, I mean I think that's a key critical component not necessarily from a technology point of view, but definitely from just a an adoption, you know, society, a, a regulation point of view. You don't want to be rolling out AI on a wide scale whether it's in a business or across, you know, across a society, whether it's for safety or profit or whatever it is without really being able to understand why the algorithm is operating how it is, right? If it's just random chance that it's been right up to now, or it has discovered some kind of intuition that we can relate to as humans.
0: Oh, very interesting. Now, where's this, I mean, you say you're interested in that aspect of it. Where, what's like for somebody working in it, what is kind of the ultimate goal, or I'm sure there may be different ones for different people, but where's kind of this, what's the larger goal in AI?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would largely break it down into the same breakdown I mentioned earlier uh, plays out in the field. So there's kind of narrow AI, which is currently where we are, where you where AI generally is going after one specific task like, you know, drive self-driving car or um or chatbot, right process these words and understand what the person is asking about and respond intelligently. So that's narrow AI. That's one focus and and that's personally one that also excites me. I mean, that's the most um, that's the most relevant and value. Uh, valuable part of it right now. That's what is driving business results. Is driving you know better user experiences because it's adding value today. It's it's a, making processes more efficient. It's not necessarily automating humans. Also, that's a, that's an interesting point we can get into. But a lot yeah. of the value is about augmenting humans. And one, yes. one simple example of that is you know doctors uh, reading um, uh, images, uh, you know X-rays or CAT scans to diagnose cancer you know, doctors have a certain accuracy rate, right? Human doctors, they read certain, they read the charts and sometimes they miss cases that actually had cancer. And sometimes they say you have cancer and on the second glance or second opinion, it turns out they were wrong. AI can also process those images and make similar predictions. Now, doctors and AI alone are, you know, are, are good. They're, they're both very highly accurate, but doctors combined with AI are actually better than either doctors or AI. So, that's one misconception is that AI is all about replacing humans. And what we're seeing more right. and more of is AI is about augmenting existing humans, helping humans uh, do what they do best, you know, creative tasks, specialized tasks, but letting the AI help them do that by doing what the AI does best, crunch lots of information in a lot less time. So, that's one field, the narrow AI element. And then a lot of people's goal is the more you know, as you alluded to science fiction type of AI, this esoteric general intelligence where you have, um, a machine or or not necessarily a physical robot, right. But an AI that can Mm -hmm. basically reason and think and do anything and more a human could do without you necessarily explicitly having to program it or teach it how to do that.
0: Is that part of the whole aspect potentially of like machine learning? Is that an element of that?
1: Well, that um, the the quick answer is yes, largely speaking. But then it, you you very quickly get to a subjective place where some people would say that how we currently think of machine learning has actually led us further away from getting to a general type of intelligence. I mean, machine learning hmm. machine learning is at its simplest just. Uh, looking at large amounts of previous data, not necessarily historical but large amounts of data and recognizing patterns or drawing inferences from that data to, in order to understand you know the next case that comes along. Um, to make that make that relatable for people one of the earliest examples or, or use cases of machine learning you've actually everybody's actually been using it for probably 20 years and that's actually your spam filter in your uh, email. So mm. you get a, you know, you, you get certain emails and you can probably guess that they have, um, certain words in common, right? Like if you get a Nigerian prince right. offering you, you know, a bunch of gold <laughs> or, yeah, yeah. So what you could do is you could detect, um, okay, the, all these previous cases of emails I know are spam and I can analyze all the words that are in them. And then the next time one comes along, I can, you know, mathematically I can quantify how similar this email is to those other emails that I know are spam and then calculated an exact probability or a guesstimate of how much I think this is spam or not. And that's in a nutshell, how a spam filter works. And that's basically what machine learning is, is learning from data to recognize patterns, to recognize trends.
0: That's fascinating. I mean, I never thought about it like that, but it it makes a lot of sense. But then I think about, um, I've seen, you know, documentaries and things and talking about like algorithms related to like YouTube mm-hmm. and how that has affected maybe people's viewing and they are even in voting. Yeah. Um, in Brazil, there is a big instance of the president being elected there primarily because of the algorithms on YouTube um, and the being, maybe being really interested. I was interested looking at that. I was like, really? That had a huge Development in that, but apparently was a huge aspect of the voting as a part of that, the algorithm for it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I um I think, you know, every every AI and machine learning solution you hear of is a form of algorithm, but not every algorithm mm-hmm. is a form of machine learning or AI, right? Just like a refrigerator, every oh. refrigerator is an appliance, but not every appliance is a refrigerator, yeah. right? So an algorithm right, right right an algorithm is really just at its simplest level a set of steps to follow to reach a specific goal so you could have an algorithm that's just a bunch of like hard coded if then logic right like if i get an email from darian you know then star it and put it at the top of my inbox right that's an algorithm that's automated code that can run a human never has to touch it but it's not making any intelligent decisions so to speak So a machine learning or AI, what separates those is those are intelligent algorithms. Instead of telling it exactly what to do. So in the case of YouTube, for example, instead of telling it like hard coding it, like, okay, after Matt watches this video, then send him this exact video. Yeah. More telling the algorithm how to decide what to do. So it could be, okay, after Matt watches a video in this topic, find similar videos in similar topics that are also popular and to suggest that to him. Mm -hmm. And so now depending on which videos are trending and depending on which videos are similar, the AI will quote unquote intelligently recommend me um, videos. But as you, as you mentioned this, you got to be careful because this type of thing can often lead to like an echo chamber type of effect um, where I'm only seeing, you know, similar, similar content all the time. I mean, it's kind of the same problem people have noticed on, on Amazon, you know amazon's recommendation engine is pretty mm-hmm. awesome. it's pretty powerful but sometimes you know if you buy like a washing machine right you're not going to be buying washing machines or toilet seats all the time <laughs> but your recommendations for the next 6 months might be like oh if you bought this maytag you might like this other one and yeah you know, yeah those are definitely examples of the relative weaknesses of narrow ai and a good example of why even today ai can be so powerful but but needs human oversight or or just controls to make sure that it's not um you know doing something that doesn't really make sense from a human's perspective.
0: Yeah, I think I've had this discussion with so many people they're like I was doing this and I got this ad for something that I was you know looking at the other day or mm-hmm. I purchased something on Amazon they keep sending this to me and I think for some people it's very annoying for oh, some yeah. people it's just kind of nud- nudging them towards what they like to do anyways for it you know how to what is the intervention for that or does the programmer basically create this and then do they even know what the ai is doing at some point is it just going through so much computing that it's like how do i pull this back i'm just i'm just not sure how that works you know
1: yeah that's a great point i mean i think um you know think about writing uh Think about you know if you ran your own store and you were trying to suggest which mm-hmm. products each customer buy you could do that up to a point right but once you have hundreds of customers thousands of customers you can't really keep track of what you're recommending to each person uh, in a similar sense a, a developer who creates a machine learning algorithm or an AI that is you know doing the same purpose of recommending products to people at some point, they're not really looking at every single example, they're flying by their instruments, so to speak, right? They're looking at kind of high level metrics of overall was the AI, you know, relatively accurate. And and that definitely, if you pick the wrong metric or if you look at the wrong things, or if you're not approaching it from a human point of view first, if you're approaching it from a technical or mathematical point of view, then it does create the possibility for these, you know, your algorithm might be mathematically very accurate but the end human experience, the end user's experience is actually terrible. Um, so there's definitely not a one-to-one corollary between the two.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's interesting learning about this stuff because it's like, I feel like a lot of it's happening and people don't know what's happening. Yeah. Like they're using a platform whatever, and they don't understand the technology that they're actually using and how it's potentially nudging or swaying their decision-making for it. And I think that can be kind of the weird element of it.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a fascinating, I mean, th- that's so pervasive. I mean, everything from the order of, you know, information you see in your Facebook feed or your Instagram or LinkedIn, I mean, that's all driven by, you know, some form of an intelligent algorithm. Um, your spam filters, as I mentioned, you know, the, the information, you're, your, the results you're getting on, on Google searches, all of this is driven by, some intelligent, you know, algorithms making probabilistic decisions. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad, right? I mean, it's awesome that mm-hmm. we can find information oh, yeah. that's relevant so much quicker. But it obviously means that there are um, there are risks and there are ways that it can be abused and there are uh, things to protect against. Uh, I think um, I'm not sure if you've heard of the concept of deep deep fakes at all. Oh yes, I
0: yeah. watched a special on it on I think the New York Times did a, a piece about it mm. and I was like horrified by it man. Yeah. I was like, this is crazy. this is like out of control man <laughs> yeah. yeah
1: I mean I think uh, from my perspective you know in the field, I think uh, we are woefully underestimating and woefully unprepared for the potential, impact and mostly just negative impacts of of deep fakes used by malicious players i mean for those not familiar deep fakes is basically you can imagine you know when you go to a hollywood movie right you can see all these special effects and sometimes they have actors you know who are playing um non-human characters like oh you know an elf or something and they're and they're mapping their face to these kind of cgi rendered creatures this in a similar way deep fakes is basically mapping a human's face to another human's face, and so it's using AI to detect, like, okay, this is this is you know uh, Matt's nose, and here's where it corresponds to on Obama's nose. So when Matt moves his nose up, Obama's nose should move up, and so I can basically create an image of myself saying something or acting, or and and translate it into an animated fake of Obama basically acting and and doing what I'm doing, and so you can be, make make what's called deep fake videos of these videos and of of you know basically cgi rendered people not doing what they've actually done or saying what they haven't actually said and i think that's very very risky it 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 fundamentally undermines our perception of reality right up until this point we've always yes. been able to, we've always been able to trust our senses what i hear is what i hear what i see is what i see but deep fakes is now for the first time going to throw that all you know going to put that all in jeopardy and and fundamentally our whole lives are at least on the you know media we're consuming online which is increasingly a a big segment of it is going to be something we can no longer just objectively trust if we ever could that's that's slightly a different point but i think that's a huge um risk that we need to be thinking about
0: well it kind of um Kind of goes into something I was thinking about, almost in a sense that this indistinguishable from reality Mm -hmm. aspect. Yeah. Things. I was, I'm very, you know, one reason I wanted to have you on is I love this, I love this whole topic. I enjoy learning about it and I'm fascinated by it, but I don't know if you watch that show Devs at all.
1: I, um, I, I I started it recently. It looked like my kind of like my kind of show. So I've been like it's your hard.
0: type of thing, Matt. Yeah. It's definitely your type <laughs> of thing. Quantum computing, right? You know, uh, simulation, many worlds theory, and yeah. I mean, since you're watching it, I won't tell you, but it's just like all of those things are in it. And I wonder the power of when reality becomes indistinguishable from a simulation. Yeah, on some level, that scares me on some, but then how would you know? You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's strange to me, that whole concept.
1: I know it's super fascinating. I mean, it's very, you know, it's very, the matrix would be how most people would think of it. I mean, um, when I I think there's an interesting, um, if you think about self-driving cars, for example, think about self-driving cars. Mm -hmm. Um, Some companies are training self-driving cars to basically drive, learn how to drive in a very realistic simulation, right? Because in the simulation, they're saying, okay, here's your input of, let's just say, let's just simplify it very much to say that the self-driving car just has, you know, one radar sensor or LIDAR sensor on the front. And it basically just detects, you know, the distance to the next object in front of it. And so the self-driving car in the simulation gets a number saying like your the next object in front of you is 10 meters away right and then the simulation the ai the ai learns that okay when that number gets small i need to slow down because i'm going to crash into something right so in the simulation the ai learns i i slow down when i'm approaching something and i can speed up when i have more you know relatively more room in front of me now, when you go and take that same algorithm and put it into a real car, hooked up to a real lidar sensor, right, detecting what's really the distance between the next real-world object in front of me, us as humans, that's fundamental. That's so different, right? Like we had a simulation of a car driving, and now a real car is driving. But to that algorithm, all it's seeing is okay. My input is ten meters, and it it literally has no way to distinguish between. 10 meters was my sensor input in the simulation or 10 meters was my sensor input in the real world it has no concept of the difference it's just going off what are its inputs to its decision making process and that might sound super foreign and uh, you know inhuman but when we think about humans i mean we're also basically flying by our instruments we're relying on our senses to make sense of this thing we call reality around us, our, our taste, our touch, our smell, you know, our sight. Um, mm-hmm. And, and w- if we cannot trust those, I mean, or right. There's, like, there's no way to distinguish. Between <laughs> exactly. If this a simulation of what we're experiencing or we've quote unquote, really experienced like all of the distinguishing things between those two, you know, the idea of real and simulation is, is completely just thrown aside. Um, It's very, it reminds me very much of, you know, Morpheus and the matrix and all the, and all those themes that have been in pop culture for the last 20 years. Yeah.
0: I think it's, it's honestly, it scares me. Like when I saw, I had never heard of deep fakes and then I, 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 somebody had told me about it. I was like, what is this? And then I saw this piece in the New York times on Hulu and they do all these really interesting pieces and it was on deep fakes and these guys, I think it was San Francisco or something. They were working on it. And I remember looking at it, I was scared. And I was like, you know, they were taking like Joe Rogan's voice or whatever and putting it on. They made like a fake Joe Rogan that looked so much like him. Yeah. And I was like, what's what's this going to be like when they perfect it?
1: Yeah. Like, yeah, it scares
0: be- me, man. It does.
1: Yeah. And we're going to, you know, and there's no, the, we need some kind of countermeasures, right? We need... There, where's the
0: regulation for something like yeah, that? yeah I don't know well, that's
1: that's part of the problem is that um, you know technology by its very nature is moving faster and faster and it, and it continues to move faster and faster and faster right the rate of advancement increases yeah. it accelerates right and so we're starting to see the rate of technological advancement basically outpace the rate of our social and and regulatory controls. Um, and some people might say that's true for a while, but that's becoming more and more true. I mean, I I, I think that in the, you know, even something like the family unit, right? For for hundreds, thousands, mm-hmm. basically all of humans' experience up until the Industrial Revolution, you know, your dad or your parents were farmers, you were a farmer, right? You 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 had a very yeah. similar life to your immediate family, but. You know, imagine, imagine recent days, or I grew up when when the internet, when when sell, like I started high school with a CD player and ended with an iPod with an iPod Nano. Like I went right yeah. through this explosive rate of growth, and I had so much more in common with my siblings and with um, you know my friend groups than I did with my parents. Right, their their lifestyle was just when they were my age was so mm-hmm. unbelievably different than what my lifestyle was, and. And that's just one example of something that's going to continue to grow and and where generations are going to have much, much, much more in common with their peer groups than with their immediate families. And so the whole idea of a family unit is something that is going to be put under strain as well and and evolve because of the rate of, of technological growth. And there's so and that's just one example, right? There's so many fundamental parts of society that will need to continue to evolve and adapt at a at a at a faster and faster rate because of technological change, and we're just not really, really you know talking about this or or worrying about it. I mean, obviously, yeah. at, the, at the very moment, we have a lot of other problems that are obviously taking priority. But these are, th- but you see these playing out because even things like um, even things like universal basic income, right? Uh, these mm-hmm. are these are themes that we are now talking about due to coronavirus having exposed some of these gaps, but they're themes that we're going to have to address and 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 one way or another deal with very shortly.
0: Totally agree. I mean, but even thinking about, like, let's say AI's role in coronavirus, it could be expanding because of the physical distancing and the different regulations related to getting back open to... Uh, businesses, maybe like AI more in hotels, robot hotels or something. I don't know. I envision like the the, increase in automation because of disease on some level.
1: Yeah, that certainly uh, could be a driver. Um, And I I think there's multiple drivers. I think there's the health and safety driver that you mentioned. There's also an economic incentive driver. I think because of the recession uh, or the economic impacts of the virus that a lot of companies are going to be looking to control costs, keep costs low, you know, scale up um, their efficiency, and that's going to lead to a lot more advancement and investment in AI type of applications. Um, so I think that this is one area that isn't going to be um, slowed down at all by what's happening now, and if anything, might actually be accelerated by is what is happening right now.
0: What do you hope to see in AI like your personal view like where do you want it to go that would excite you the most is it what we've talked about or is there something that you're just like man this is the area I want to see this thing come to fruition
1: yeah um i think i think the most important you know i'll, I'll break it down short term mid term long term so in the short term i think the most important thing to come to fruition the most important area to keep focusing on is this Advancing the human interpretability of AI models, so that we can continue not to just understand, you know, AI, but also understand more about ourselves, understand what it means to be intelligent, what it means to make a decision, what it means to think critically about something—all um, skills that are, you know, have gone um, a little bit overlooked uh, in our education system. Um, and so I think those are that that's important to understand why the AI is making the decision it does because it also fundamentally enables collaborating with hu- you know humans and machines collaborating. If you don't know how the AI is working, if you don't trust it, it's almost impossible to work with it. So that's the most important advancement I'd like to see in the short term is these more collaborative models of AI. In the midterm, I think you're going to start to see um, you know more uh, sophisticated. Um, more sophisticated, AI capable of doing more sophisticated reasoning. I would love to see AIs out there that are a little bit more science fiction-y, you know, where it's not like Siri can only do three things correctly, but I can ask Siri to kind of, you know, make a little bit of like help plan a vacation for me or, or, or something along those lines where there's a lot of different moving pieces and Siri is kind of able to tackle those, all at once versus right now it's basically like either Google something for me or find a song I like right or do this one exact thing <laughs> yeah um, and, and think in the long term you know this is going away from the technology per se but going more to the implications and the effects of the technology if you think about imagine a world where we have relatively relatively intelligent you know, AI, um, that can that can do what you know relatively complex tasks. And we have that widespread and we have something like solar power widespread. Well now you've got machines that can manufacture or, or create whatever it is we need. and you've got almost an infinite, almost free power supply. Your cost of goods, the cost of producing something, the cost of producing medicine or clothing or housing, approaches zero right approaches like it's automatic to make that right. so um so this enables a whole new type of society where and i know a lot of people love having a job they get pride and you know from from working i'm not saying you can't work but it enables a society where for the first time you don't need to work to have access to what you need to survive, right? You can have food, you can have clothes, you can have a place to live and you don't need to work to have those for virtually free. You can work. And what you can do is spend more and more in your time focusing on things like creativity and, and making and exploring what it is to be human and making projects and doing things that AI can't do very well. So this gets a little bit esoteric, but my hope, you know, the thing I care about the most or would love to see the most in the future is a move to this type of society, this type of model where people are not forced to go to nine to five jobs that they absolutely hate and are miserable in just so they can survive. But we have a society that enables, um, you know, access to those things, technologically enabled society that enables access to the end results of why you go to that work, but now you can spend your time doing something productive that you actually enjoy.
0: Welcome to the intermission. Maybe you're thinking right now, technology is overwhelming, and there's a lot going on in the digital space. It's true but it doesn't have to be overwhelming. It could be wonderful, but we can also have a healthy understanding of how we can make it less fearful and have a better control of what we're doing. In the end, it seems there's gonna be a merging of technology and people. On some level, things are moving fast. What you can do is slow down and take the time to process information and make an informed opinion. I love podcasting. I love what it represents. Listen to thoughts, ideas. then make up your own mind. What's interesting about that? I am all for that. I'm really <laughs> all for that. But yeah. I think there's another side to it also sure. is that I think so many people are defined by work. Yes. And it's their existence. And so even if you gave them more time to explore outside of their work, they wouldn't know what to do. They their identity is their their work, is their dogma. It's their it's their meaning for existence. So I think like for me. I've been having that type of lifestyle. Well, I've been able to do more things. I enjoy doing this podcast, but there's a large percentage of people who like, if you drop them in the middle of a new existence and it's happening right now, Yeah, currently with coronavirus, people are at home. They have more time. Right. And I'm bored. I don't know what to do. <laughs> I'm like, well, what if you had this time all the time? Yeah. What do you mean? You're bored. There's so many, but there's a lot of people. They wouldn't know how to function because their existence is based off of work. <laughs> what they yeah. do, you know?
1: Yeah. And I totally agree. I mean, I, I think hopefully coronavirus is a special case where you're you have nothing to do and you're locked up in your home versus you have nothing to do, but you can do anything in theory. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I agree. I think it would take it takes a wide fundamental shift away from like, what? it. Why am I here? Like, my whole purpose is not just to go to a job I hate. Right. There's got to be something else to it. So, um, right. Uh, it definitely takes a fundamental shift and and for certain people or certain segments, it'll be easier than others. Um, but, but I think this is a necessary uh, thing that we are going to have to grapple with sooner or later. And as you correctly identified, we're already starting to grapple with it.
0: Well, I think it's the march of technology and intelligence, artificial intelligence. It's just going to keep happening, Yeah, you know, to think that it's not, and all of a sudden we're going to like, go backwards, it's just, that's not our nature as people. We move forward, we continue to create, to evolve. And I think I think it's very exciting, but I also like, I think about it in the sense of like, I wanna do this, but I also don't want it to like, be weird in the sense of, but I don't know how long that is. So like when you say long-term AI, what does that mean to yeah. you or in the field? Because long-term can mean different things to different people. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's an you know it's incredibly it's easier to see where things are probably going or almost inevitably going. It's almost impossible to see to say when they will reach that point, but but I don't think it's impossible and this is not necessarily my personal opinion but also triangulated with you know futurists and people smarter than I that mm-hmm. we're talking about, you know, within 30 to 50 years society will look entirely different than what it looks like today um do involving many of these elements that we've been talking about
0: it feels like things change within like the same year drastically
1: yeah um
0: is now the acceleration points like i was listening to uh elon musk talk about neuralink and different things like mm-hmm. that and And he was mentioning on a podcast that he thought, you know, Tesla, I have a Tesla. I love it. I think it's amazing. Uh, Tesla basically sped up the technology and the AI in that particular aspect of things by 10 to 20 years, or electric car making and self-driving as they're working towards. That seems like a huge jump from one thing (laughs) like that. I don't understand how that happens. You know what I mean? Like,
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, progress is very non-linear and, and I do and not just and I don't mean that as in it's constantly growing I also mean it's just like jumps jumps it seems to you know jump ahead and then get frozen and then jump ahead again it's very um you know this uh, word escapes me but it's a very irregular uh process erratic process mm-hmm. I mean you might be you might have heard the term thrown around of the AI winter um that was when... Oh,
0: I never heard of that. I never heard of that.
1: So the AI winter was a long period of time, 10, 20 year, maybe possibly longer period, depending on how you kind of define it, where remember how I mentioned a lot of these AI algorithms, you know, even the fancy ones that people might've heard of called neural networks, right? Or deep learning, where those Mm -hmm. are used for things like image recognition and natural language processing. Even those fancy algorithms existed 30, 40, 50 years ago, but... What didn't exist was all the infrastructure, architecture, you know, understanding data, cloud computing that would enable those to be tested and used in a widespread way. And so um, there was kind of a period of development where those architecture, those algorithms were being designed and created, and the theory of AI was advancing super fast. But then in the AI winter, people kind of realized, okay, but the practical application of these isn't very useful, like. We can't, it's impossible to train a neural network. We don't have the right hardware. We don't have enough data. And so there was a long period of where AI basically stalled out and there wasn't much progress made in in terms of using a lot of these theories. And then it's at the late 90s, early 2000s, especially the 2010s, we kind of reentered this phase of AI growth, again, mainly due at least to what kicked it off was the kind of surrounding environment and ecosystem Finally, catching up to the theory of machine learning and AI that had been advanced. And so, I think what you see is different parts of technology kind of outpace and outgrow each other. And then they almost have to wait for the other thing to catch up. Like in the example of Tesla, their constraint is really battery technology, right? Like we're still pretty bad. We're still very bad at making batteries that hold large amounts of charge (laughs) for a long period of time. And that's a big limitation on things like electric cars.
0: It's incredible. I I am blown away by all the technology and how fast it's like. I, I got a Tesla because I I was like, this seems like the next thing. This seems like it's moving in a way that feels, as my wife calls it, it's a self-aware spaceship, it feels like. <laughs> and it it just feels like it's learning, like it's staring at you or like that it's learning you and, and all these things, all the over-the-air software updates and all these things. It's like, it feels like Skynet on some level, you know, it's, there's something amazing about that type of technology where you think this car is driving itself on some level. It's looking at things. It keeps improving. It sees stoplights. It sees stop signs. Like what is going on here? You know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's, um, it's super awesome and super exciting if it's done well and obviously if it's done with the right, uh, controls in place. But, uh, yeah, if your car starts spying on you and reporting back to Tesla HQ, then obviously a little bit less fun. (laughs) Um,
0: What is the thing about like, uh, so many people tell me this, your Alexa is listening to you mm -hmm. when you're not speaking to it. Like, is there any truth to that? Or is that just people just, they don't understand. Is that what it is?
1: Well, um, I I would have to say I haven't looked into all the specifics of each, you know, case. Yeah. And each company might be different, but but generally speaking, there's a, at least an element of truth to that, right? So if if you're mm. you know, if you're Alexa or Siri or whatever it is is going off of a voice command, right? Like, hey Siri, it's fundamentally, mm-hmm. and I I hope I didn't just trigger a bunch of people's um, phones, but <laughs>
0: <laughs> maybe maybe. Yeah
1: but um but but fundamentally right it, it is basically detecting listening and dete- monitoring for that specific audio pattern those specific words and so in some sense it is at, at least um always monitoring what you're saying in terms of just being on attention for it being called to action you know saying hey siri um that doesn't necessarily mean that it's storing or remembering, or or processing what you're saying beyond that, right? It doesn't mean that it's saving in in memory or uploading it to Apple or Amazon or wherever. That being said, you know yeah. how how these technologies get better is by get, being exposed to more and more data and learning from that. And so, um, I right. know, I know of at least limited cases where these things are recording segments of conversation, at least once it gets triggered and then it detects like, oh, I shouldn't have been triggered. It tries to listen and then process what happened so that it can learn not to trigger itself um, in the the future when someone says, you know, um, something that sounds like what it thought it should be listening to.
0: You know what's weird? Like I've had an Alexa for a long time and it's weird watching it get better. Yeah, I think that's so you're saying on the data, because like just the other day, it was like, should I set your alarm for the morning now? And I never told it to do that, but maybe <laughs> it just sees that every night at the same time I set the alarm. Yeah. And it just is learning that this is what he does at this time. Is that what that is doing? Basically, it's it's learning that.
1: Yeah, probably. It sounds like that. I mean, it's probably just uh, detecting a—you a pa- know—all you're doing basically is a pattern, right? Uh, establishing a pattern, pattern right? A, r- a routine, yeah. and it's just learning. Hey, Darian, you know he has some patterns throughout the day. He likes to eat lunch at this time. He likes to go for a jog at this time. He likes to, you know, set his alarm for this time in the morning. I could be helpful by, you know, suggesting to do that at this mm-hmm. time rather than helping him manually having him manually do that, and. Uh, there's nothing fundamentally wrong, right? That that could be super awesome, super helpful, super useful. Oh, it's great. And it, yeah, and it doesn't mean that, like, you know, that information. Also important to note is the the device can be learning that about you, so to speak, or or helping you do that. And it doesn't necessarily mean that that information needs to be sent anywhere, right? It doesn't necessarily need to be sent to right. Amazon headquarters. It doesn't necessarily need to be tagged or associated with you as, a, as an individual. And so there's lots of ways we can have, we can balance the technological benefits of AI with kind of privacy you know, and and all these other concerns. But um, But I can certainly see why people would see that. And then their first thought is, Amazon's you know, spying on me. They know what time I like to wake up <laughs> in the morning. Yeah.
0: It's funny. Yeah. I think this, like you said, it makes sense. Like more data is being pumped into it. And so it's learning. It's like literally the other day it was cracking me up. I was setting my alarm <laughs> and Alexa said, can you tell me your name? This- and I was like, what? <laughs> what, what are you talking about? And I, it caught me off guard. Right. So, you know, and then, so I tried to ask it, and I was like, do you want to know my name? And it was like, I don't understand that. And I was like, wait, you just asked me what my name was. Like, it was weird. <laughs> <You
1: know? laughs> yeah. I mean, that is one of the, He's we-
0: never done that before.
1: Yeah. It, it's hard to, one of the, one of the challenges of, of, of natural language in, in, in that specific field is that so much of our conversations as humans is context dependent right you and i having this conversation yes. we remember what we were talking about at the start of this you know at this conversation we remember what we talked about yeah. in the middle we rem- we know the general context of right now when i'm speaking these words i know i'm talking about you know having our conversation but it's hard to develop ai which can easily you know identify it can identify what you know what turn up the volume means but to understand that you're talking about you know, the volume of this song or turning up the volume in, in like its personality, like be more you know excitable. It, th- that's a totally different context, a totally different meaning. It's very hard for an AI to learn. It takes a tremendous amount of of data and understanding to be able to make that distinction. So yeah, that is one of the weaknesses of it seems like chatting with these devices that they're just they have 10 second memories and that everything is like a non-sequitur
0: <laughs> It's true. Yeah. I wonder what the when thinking of, I see, I think about like something like that. And I remember I was saying like, I feel like this is how it begins. It starts out like a little round disc mm. and then it get, becomes bigger and bigger. And then there's this fascination in movie and cinema that that thing becomes the shell of a human body, a robotic body that has skin on it. And what, what is that fascination for our robots to become or to look like us potentially?
1: That's an interesting question. I mean, I, I, I think um, possibly psychologists or sociologists would have, you know, more to say specifically mm-hmm. about that. But, but my personal theory would be, I, I mean, I would just point to, you know, um, what's the word? It's not alliteration. It's uh, what what's the word when we personify even inanimate objects, right? We give, we give human characteristics and traits to right. to animals, to, to objects. And so, um, this is something we've done since the beginning of time. Our, our myths are full of creatures and things that we kind of interpret as being like us or make, you know in our form. So I think it's almost some innate natural drive to be making um, these these things that we're producing more and more like us. Uh, more similar to us, uh, but beyond that kind of innate esoteric kind of drive, I think there's also just a, a very real, you know, user adoption kind of point of view. I mean, to to take this to um, some some examples. I mean, we've done projects for companies where you know the the AI, the technology isn't the limitation; it's the people in the company who don't want, who aren't willing to change, who don't want to accept this new thing you know who don't want to use it or don't trust it or don't want to underst- let it talk to its customers you know their customers for them um they, they they're the ones who are you know preventing the the ai from potentially creating business value and you know certainly some cases they're they're right. more right than others but but all i'm trying to say is that there is this very real um element of adoption and that's important like how how is the technology received is almost more important than what is the technology capable of doing? And so I think there's an element of making it more relatable, more uh, emotional, more easy to uh, collaborate with and work with and trust that is very important to seeing widespread adoption, consumer adoption of AI-enabled solutions or technologies.
0: It's interesting. I think it's an interesting dichotomy because in many ways, aren't human beings just fueling? The advancement of AI with smartphones—I mean, it's basically a prosthetic for the majority of people. It is their digital prosthesis, and it, all the information that keeps getting fed into the uh, machine keeps moving it forward. Is that true on some element, or, or no? Am I way off base with that? Yeah.
1: No, I mean, I think that's a—I think that's a great—I think that's a great insight. In fact, there are some. There are some kind of thinkers who, you know, theorists and futurists who believe that rather than this idea of the machines, kind of, you know, this like Terminator idea of the machines taking over from humans, the idea is more like humans will become the machines. Um, Yes, Richard Dawkins is is one uh, who who has proposed these theories that comes to mind. Of yeah, I mean, the cell phone is 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 basically uh, a device that will become more and more integrated within our, within our, our life, within our activities, but also within our physical bodies. Right. And we will become more and more, we ourselves will become basically the robots. It's almost, it's almost like we're at the point, you know, in history of where uh, homo sapiens and Neanderthals kind of clashed. We, we might be seeing, we might be seeing in the near future what we would, what we might call, you know, a new species of this kind of tech fused human homo sapien um, and these, you know, other homo sapiens for whatever reason, um, you know, whether it's personal or, or various different reasons aren't, don't have access or don't choose to um, embed technology as deeply within their personal lives or within their physical bodies. And you have, you will have these two incredibly different just worlds and types of experience. I mean, imagine a person who could Google something, you know, just by thinking about it and think about what they would have in common with a a person, a normal person that we know of today. I mean, it's like they would have almost nothing in common.
0: Yeah. It it feels like even just, you know, I grew up in the eighties and I think about like, if I wanted to know something back then, it was pretty hard for me to learn it, to like, just find out about it real quick. It was like, have to find a textbook or something, or I have to read about it. What's my access to that? I don't have it, you know, in the palm of my hand. I have to go somewhere to find that information and then get back to somebody. Whereas now, like, you could be watching TV. I do this all the time. I'll see a show about an actor, and I'll go, oh, what were they in? And just look it up, yeah. look up their, their, you know, their, right. What.
1: What, what they were in, you can find yeah. in
0: seconds in the IMDb what they did right. through their whole career. You could never do that before.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I love that. I mean, I like to, you know, I, I like to frame it in the light of the how we th- used to think about intelligence, right? Like the the smartest person in the room used to be the person in the room who knew the most information, right? You could ask them a question and they would know the answer, but nowadays. Knowing information, everyone knows. Everyone knows information or has access to information, right? So knowing knowing information is not that rare. Is not that valuable anymore. Being able to interpret, being able to process information is the value add. To look up information and detect, oh, this is fake news or this is real, or see that, oh, because this is true and this is true, that implies that this next thing is going to happen. That's how increasingly you know, defines the smartest person in the room. And so it's interesting to think about as, as artificial intelligence changes, it's interesting to also think about how our definition of human intelligence or just intelligence in general is also not this static thing. It's not this fixed thing. It actually is also changing. Um, and I think that's a point that we underestimate quite a lot.
0: Yeah, the... The access to information is staggering, and I I think about isn't that basically Elon Musk things like Neuralink is kind of that intersection between uh, technology or artificial intelligence and humanity. Like, hey, let's just um, let's just like connect with it because if we don't connect with it, it will overtake us. It seems like that's his whole thing. It's like we might as well just join it instead of trying to be you know I'm having a separate thing, you know. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think in principle I don't often always agree with Elon Musk. I think he's on the spectrum of, of yeah. people. He's a bit of an alarmist of you know over exaggerating the risks of AI. At least I in, agree. At yeah. least in the short, you know, at least the practical risks for the time being. Although I agree in principle, we should be very proactive when you know exponential rates of growth have a norm, not the exception. That being said, um, yes, in this case, I definitely agree. I mean, I think um, it's hard to see how. Else, we could really collaborate at scale with these type of concepts and machines and technology in general without some kind of bridging the gap between uh, human thought and these technologies, and and that would seem to imply uh, an ev- inevitable path of bringing them more and more centrally into our you know physical um, physical existence.
0: What was the kind of the the big deal about? the computer beating like the grandmaster of go. I'm sure I'm guessing you saw this and like the significance of that accomplishment.
1: So, yeah, I think that significance is perhaps misunderstood or lost on people, especially because a lot of people are familiar with, you know, AIs beating uh, human players at chess for, for years now. Mm -hmm. Um, The key difference is that in chess, there are, a v- extremely large number of possible board arrangements and moves right but there but that number is finite it is limited there is only a certain possible number of arrangements on a chessboard and number of moves you can make and so that means that in theory at least if you had a powerful enough computer you could calculate the best move to make in every single possible situation and you could win every single game. Right? It's just mathematically impossible for you to lose at that point. Um, obviously, we're nowhere near there, and that's not how chess-playing machines work, but that's at least possible in theory. Um, with Go, that's not true. There are infinite number of arrangements and moves and combinations, and so it's a much more complex space to model uh, from the point of view of someone developing a machine learning or AI solution to play the game. Um, and, and it's much more complex for an AI to learn how to play well because it can do virtually anything, or there's any arrangement. Because you know, to 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 put this in terms that might be easier to understand, remember that machine learning is learning from previous data, right? It's learning from last time I saw mm-hmm. these seven emails, they were spam. Well. If there's infinite possible moves you might never have seen that move before right you might you by definition you'll always be able to find a move or an arrangement that you don't have any data about and so that makes it very difficult to learn how to move and so um go uh that that that, that algorithm that google used was another school of machine learning called reinforcement learning where you're almost the, the simple analogy is that you're almost training it like you would a pet or a dog. You're kind of showing it an, a possible number of actions to take and then you're rewarding it based on its action. So, you know, you're telling your dog to sit and maybe it's running around for a while, but, but once it randomly sits, you give it a treat. And so, you know, at first your puppy's really young and it's super distracted and it's just doing all sorts of different actions almost randomly, but over time it starts to, Randomly learn that okay if I if I happen to sit down when the human says sit I get uh, I get a treat I get a reward and so it starts to learn those patterns and map those together and then then it knows that the next time you say sit it sits and gets that treat immediately so that's a very very simplified example of how fundamentally reinforcement learning works basically Google was able to train this algorithm to learn how to make moves that got to the reward of winning the game. Um, And so that was a really big advancement because we didn't need, for for multiple reasons. One, because the AI beat a human, so it exceeded our human capability at a very complex task, one that had infinite possible arrangements, which was pretty novel. Um, And then two, we were able to do that without explicitly giving the AI lots of data, right? We didn't give the AI lots of examples of human moves to learn from the AI was able to basically right. teach itself and so those two reasons are why that case is so uh, important and powerful um, and doesn't ha- ha- it doesn't really relate one to one with AI with the chess playing AIs of the you know previous decades.
0: Oh wow, that's amazing. Uh, it's, I remember seeing that and I was like, I've never played go before or anything. And I was like, I don't understand this. And then, but everybody was touting it as like this really huge thing. And, and now understanding a little bit more, it, it makes a lot of sense how powerful or the significance of something like that is. Yeah. Because- now I think about like what we're doing, like I've kind of always interested in the merger of science fiction and mm. reality of that what have you seen in like, cause I remember, Follow me here. I remember, like when I was in the, uh, like younger, and I watched Back to the Future. Like I love that movie so much. Yeah, great and movie. And they had like in part two the video conferencing with Ni- with needles mm-hmm. and Marty McFly and, and the dad. And I was like, that's so cool. People are talking to each other, like on a video. Now that's yeah. like so common now. Yeah. What do you think is what like that do you see currently? You think that could be part of our society in the near future?
1: It's hard to say. Um, I think just these themes that we've been talking about—I mean, obviously not as far-fetched themes—but the more um, just the existing technology, the existing capabilities AI, AI has, will be more widely uh, distributed and more pervasive. So, you know, self-driving cars, for example, the the technology—I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to go to. Japan as a teenager, and we went to um, Toyota's kind of showroom, and they had a self-driving car driving around a track, and this was like the mid-early 2000s. So, um, you know, self-driving cars as a technology has been around for coming up on 20 years. Um, But obviously, there's a lot of real-world barriers between being technologically feasible and being, you know, practical. Um, And so I think the main thing is just a wider disbursement a wider prevalence of ai in our daily lives so self-driving cars is probably the biggest one that comes to mind uh, especially when, when you consider just how much americans you know associate their even identity with their car right like how what car yeah. what kind of car you drive is so important to people um you know we're we're, we're organized around driving on highways rather than other forms of transportation. And with, if imagine you have a fleet of self driving cars, or like you know an Uber fleet of self driving cars, you basically don't need to dr- ever own a car anymore, right? You can just request right. this autonomous car that's driving around, you know, twenty three hours a day, and maybe it recharges one day of the you know one hour a day. It's driving around all the time, and it, and the cost of accessing that that transportation would be very very inexpensive. So I think that's probably the biggest change i see coming around the near you know the near future that people aren't ready for um for other reasons too i mean uh, truck driver is one of the most common jobs in many states and yeah. self-driving trucks are are a big part of that um, other than self-driving uh, cars i mean i think just facial recognition um and kind of what uh what this um what coronavirus has kind of exposed is maybe we need maybe we do need while still preserving privacy maybe we do need some more you know things like scanning people's body temperatures or tracking you know at least known cases and so um or on like i w- i was actually i guess japan's always kind of known for for being in the future but i was actually in japan um for the second time um last november right shortly before all this broke out and yeah. going through their customs they actually had a facial recognition to scan you know for your passport so um, all of these things can be streamlined. And I think facial recognition and self-driving cars are two of the kind of most in-your-face things around the corner. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily like too many things will, the technology itself will suddenly be all futuristic. I think it's more about the the breadth of the distribution of the technology. Mm. Uh, one of my favorite authors, uh, science fiction author William Gibson, you, know, you might know this, he's, he's famously quoted as saying, the future is already here it's just not widely distributed yet. So, I think that very much applies to to AI in the next 5 to 10 years.
0: I believe that. Yeah, I think maybe it's not this monumental singular jump. People often look at things that way like, oh, this was this this moment where this thing turned on and it changed society. You right. know, like it feels like it's it's very fast, but it feels like it's just the adoption or wider adoption. Of te- I feel that with yeah. like the the cars, electric cars, I feel like electric cars have all of a sudden begun to infiltrate a lot of society in certain places. Like where I'm at in Washington state, tons of uh, electric cars, like everywhere, California, yeah. a lot of electric cars, probably not in Mississippi, you know what I mean? But yeah, you know, it's like,
1: yeah. You know? and, and, uh, and oil prices are, are plummeting. So maybe, Right. Short term, there might be some counter effect, but yeah, I mean, I, I think definitely, uh, definitely, it's all about you know, even distribution is is always what happens in theory and never what happens in practice. So, a lot, of, a lot of these advancements in the last five, ten years of AI and machine learning still haven't really quite worked their way through to the extent that they they will in the near future. Um, just one, another example would be you know exacerbated by the the impact on the supply chain and manufacturing from coronaviruses you know you think about combining ai with something like 3d printing and you could really change the face of manufacturing and do a lot of more mm. localized manufacturing where if i you know if i'm operating a factory and i need a, a specific part of a machine breaks instead of ordering a part from you know that's made in china or wherever if I have a, a local 3D printer, I can have that, you know, dynamically print up this complicated piece that I need and just source that from, from you know, made in America or from from around the block. So I think 3D printing is le- less in the face of consumers, but another area where AI technology um, will be uh, changing very rapidly.
0: Oh, my gosh. I saw a documentary about 3D printing. Several years ago, it like blew my mind. Yeah. And I was like, this is crazy stuff, man. (laughs) Like people making guns through it, organs. And so I'm like, this is nuts, man. But if you talk to like a variety of people, it's some people kind of know about it. And some people literally have no clue it exists. You know, it's
1: weird. Yeah and I am far from an expert so I don't want to speak too much on it um but but it it is uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of it I mean I don't, I don't want to speak too much past yes. that I mean I think it has great potential to change so much of our lives and I'm a huge fan of it but uh yeah I don't I, I definitely would like to learn more about it I don't understand all of it
0: Man Matt I got to tell you this was as good as I thought it was going to be it really was <laughs> man like here. You speak, my, you speak my language, except that you actually are in that industry. I'm just a fan. I'm just somebody who researches stuff and looks at it. But I've, I've been wanting to talk to somebody that actually does the work. And um, it's fascinating. I definitely got to have you on again, because there's so many other areas of this that I have an interest in. And I want you to watch devs, because I want, okay. you, I want you to come back on, and I want to have a discussion about quantum computing. I don't know a lot about it, but I'm fascinated by
1: it. Oh, man. Yeah, that's a that's an incredible area as well. Um, so. Yeah. Well, thank you yeah, so much. I appreciate yeah. it. Awesome.
0: Yeah, thanks for your time. And um, I um, I really look forward to people listening to this and, and hearing. I think it's a big part of our lives, whether we want it to be or not. And so it's yeah. good to be informed. So thank you so much.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on and, and always keen to chat. More tech, and, uh, and I will definitely check out tabs. Awesome. Finish the season, yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the rate and review section. Thanks, everyone.